0: It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in, because the runout starts now. Today's show is brought to you by Outdoor Research. Whether the good kids on your list this year love epic adventures in the mountains, or just looking oh-so-fine in the cafe after a brisk dawn patrol, Outdoor Research has the gift-giving goods this holiday season. This year, try not to be embarrassed by your bro's tears of joy when you hand him a transcendent down hoodie from OR. Don't duck the hug when your bestie opens her amazing ascending jacket. And though she's a purist, your grandma will learn to love the splitter gloves you give her. Look, grandma, no sticky residue. So if you want the hugs to come fast and fierce this holiday season, shop all the gifts designed to spark adventure at outdoorresearch.com. Or your favorite local shop.
1: Chip Chase dedicated his life to the practice of climbing, which is to say that he had dedicated his life to the practice of living. Chase was no household name in the climbing world. Yet his contributions to the sport, such as the first ascent of Fine Jade, inarguably one of the best and most popular 511 Desert Towers, gave him a stature of respect and admiration within the core climbing community. Chase rarely spoke about his climbing, and yet you'd have to go really far to find a route he hadn't done or an area he hadn't explored. This silent passion, in which accomplishments speak for themselves, left an indelible mark among his closest friends and admirers. On November 3rd, at the age of 60 years old, Chase died of pancreatic cancer, following a relatively short yet extremely painful battle with the disease. He died in his meditation room in his home, in the mountains outside of Boulder, Colorado, surrounded by his closest friends and his wife, Monica. In the last weeks of his life, he wrote a letter to his friends and patients, whom he served as a practitioner of Chinese medicine. It's a powerful letter that speaks to what an extraordinary spirit Chase embodied. Here is an excerpt First and foremost, I want my death to be an act of creative transformation. That is to say, I want to die well. I've been training for this my entire life, and I'm well prepared. I would have preferred to die in the mountains, and that is indeed what Monica and I had envisioned for me. I got this instead. Yet here is precisely where I want to be. I cry from the raw wonder and intensity of the experience, but never because I'm sad or afraid. I'm grateful for every second I've lived so far and for whatever moments I have left. When I'm writhing in pain, I scream thank you. When I'm puking my guts out, I retch thank you. And sometimes, fuck. I've been practicing more or less this way for a long time. I think what Chase is saying here is that climbing might not just be a good way to practice living. Perhaps it might also be a way to prepare ourselves for the inevitability of death. This is Andrew Bisharat, and I'm here with my co-host, Chris Calouse. Today, we have two guests, Jamie Logan and her son, Michael Logan. Jamie was a peer to Chase, a close friend and climbing partner. As a younger man, Michael considered Chase one of his most formative mentors. We invited Jamie and Michael on to do something that, ironically, might have caused Chase himself to grimace. Put into words the significance of Chip Chase's accomplishments as a climber. Our deepest condolences go out to all those who loved and admired Chip Chase.
0: Thanks for coming on the run out. We have Jamie Logan here and her son, Michael Logan. And we're here to talk about Chip Chase, a climber from Boulder who passed away about almost exactly a month ago now. And we're just here to kind of get your impressions as, as two climbers that knew Chip, climbed with Chip for, for a really long time. And my first question to you, Jamie, is what do you think made Chip, you know, such a special climber that, that he's someone that we really need to talk about and and to remember?
2: Well, I think the f- the first thing is that he was incredibly good. I mean, I've been with him when he unsighted 513, and not a lot of people just do that. But he mainly loved climbing all the time, and he loved climbing by himself. He rope soloed all over the country. Uh, he climbed all over the world, and he never really told anybody about it. He would come back, and I'd say where were you? It's like, oh, I was climbing in the wind rivers. And what'd you do? Oh, I did this big face. And that was kind of it. We never really talked about it. And he didn't feel any need to broadcast what he was doing. And for him, I think a really important thing is that climbing was an important part of making his whole life a spiritual practice. He really hated it. If you said, okay, Chip, you're doing good. Or if you yelled at him or anything like that, it kind of broke the the process, he would, he would stop and look at you and say, shut the fuck up and, or just like, don't, don't talk to me. And, um, that, one sounds, time he,
0: that sounds very spiritual.
2: Yeah. very spiritual. <laughs> it was kind of a, a funny thing because, um, it was, it was always evident that it wasn't truly spiritual when he'd get so grumpy, when we would talk to him while he was climbing. But, um, anyway, that's the way he was. He was a great, a really great rock climber.
1: Jamie, what? How, how did you meet Chip? Well, my my uh, knowing
2: Chip started when I picked him up hitchhiking in El Dorado. It would have been in the late seventies. So I was at the point in my life where I was winding down a fairly intensive climbing career, and he had just showed up in Boulder, and he was nineteen years old, and uh, was climbing quote unquote five eleven, which at the time was as hard as anybody climbed, basically, and. Uh, loved climbing more than anything. And he'd wanted to meet me because he'd heard about me. And we drove back into Boulder and we talked. And we didn't actually climb together for uh, many years, until uh, many years after that. Because I was really sort of stopping at that point. And he was really getting going. So that's when I first met him.
3: I remember being in the car, Jamie, with you. And it was just when I was getting into climbing. I was 18 and I was really, really captured by this new part of my life and you were explaining something about how chip was spending all the every single weekend in rifle and I i remember being so fascinated by um first of all what was this place rifle and this this person chip who you talked about as he as if he were just a friend but i started reading the magazines and i remember reading that he had done an early ascent of Destichado Chato or, or some route in El Dorado and he quickly became this sort of mythical figure in my mind. Um, and then later we would we would climb together some and um, when he you know we, we he, Jamie, Chip and I went to the gym once and Chip started asking me about what my life was like in climbing and I was living in Durango and um, when he called me a couple weeks later to ask if I wanted to go do something in Indian Creek I was just totally floored, but this person who was a a deity to me would, would want to go climbing with his 23 year old kid. And, uh, so that's how I started climbing with him.
1: Not much is known about his curriculum vitae in climbing. I know he did the first ascent of fine jade. Um, so much of his career was sort of, you know, in the shadows, I guess, uh, just kept to himself and his own process. But, um, just for listeners Give us a scope of, of his contribution to the sport. So, when,
2: when I was tasked by Rock and Ice with writing his obituary, which is one of the hardest things I've ever done, I thought, what did Chip do? And I started going back through the literature and looking at first ascents. And he really didn't do all that many first descents. There were some pretty major climbs, like the free nose, and that um, he was brought in to lead the crux pitch and then left, you know. So, um, but he did do in his. Uh, In maybe 1978, 79, somewhere in there, he was in Arizona and he did the first descent of three very hard cracks in uh, Cochise that are still considered very, very difficult. And he was climbing a lot in the desert and doing first descents there. He didn't tend to tell anybody when he did a first ascent. He just did it. And he didn't care about first ascents per se. He just cared about climbing. He loved climbing in Zion, in the Wind Rivers. It was like whenever a climbing area was sort of really getting established, he was around. And then once it became crowded, he would go somewhere else. Because he loved climbing by himself, for one thing. I kept finding these oblique references to um, we went and did this climb. We did the third ascent. It was uh, 511R, A4. Chip Chase did the uh, second ascent solo the year before. Those kind of things. But he certainly never told anybody about it. He would just come back and say he had a really good time and he did a great route.
3: Four routes he was famous for in the desert um, were Liquid Sky on North Six Shooter, um, Palefire on the north side of Moses, Zigi on the Bridger Jacks, and Find Jade on the rectory. But but this is sort of I th- I think um emblematic of kind of his story because it, it it's not so much these roots that um certainly are famous classic roots that make him special. It's his unending passion for climbing. And and I think that one of the things that illustrates that is that he, um, constantly was reaching out, I think to younger partners as he, as he grew into, uh, into an older climber. Um, he, when he started climbing with me, he was, you know, in his fifties, but he had this, um, this thirst for, for hard roots. And he knew that young, sometimes, um, naive climbers could be sort of Talked into going to do some harder things, and and he was. I, I, the more I hear from other climbers who who he touched, I, I realized that this is a pattern that there were lots of young people who he was uh, recruiting to go climbing with him, and and he taught all those young climbers a tremendous amount about climbing. Do, do you know that when I went to Verdun, I had been planning this trip to go to Europe. I was twenty six, and it was the trip of a lifetime. And that literally, when we, we drove up to the to the lip of the Verdun, of the north rim of the Verdun and um step out and just psyched beyond belief and chip was standing there and he has really really long wavy hair and it was like this god was standing there and i was like chip chase what what are you doing here and uh he said i forget what he said first but he said do you want to go do a route (laughs) and 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 i was there with some peers and we were doing some the safe routes where we were wrapping maybe one two three pitches off the top and uh he said, okay, we're going to meet here tomorrow morning and I'll pick the route. And uh, we did it in pure Verdun style. We'd wrapped way down in there and it was a terrifying route. It was, you know, the, the routes that you read about in the Verdun. And uh, his hair was whipping all over the place. And I just, I will always remember uh, how lucky I was to 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 be in that place with that human being.
1: I'm really fascinated. I, I, I want to get into his philosophy because I think there's a lot of interesting discussion that can go there. But before we get into that, uh, into that discussion, just to lay the facts down, I, I think he was he died of of pancreatic cancer. Is, is that correct? And I, I believe he was in um, Baffin Island on a on a solo trip at a big wall climbing trip when he he he, he found out that he was diagnosed with this. Disease. Is, is that accurate?
2: He'd been to Baffin Island the year before, and, and his um, dream was to rope solo, to go in by himself, which is a long, scary, dangerous approach across rivers and stuff, and to climb Asgard. And he was on Asgard, and a rockfall came down and didn't hurt him, but it cut his uh, main rope. So he only had one shorter rope and another rope. So he decided that he couldn't do Asgard, and he went and he did uh, Mountain Across the Way. Um, Mount Freya is the name of the rock. Anyway, he rope-soloed this mountain across from Asgard. And along the way, he was uh, climbing slabby 511 covered with quarter-inch thick ice. It was too thin for using ice tools or anything. He had ice tools. And um, so he was basically chipping off ice and climbing slabs by himself up there. And at some point, he fell. And he was in an icy chimney, and he slipped, and he fell 30 feet and broke some ribs. And he was sort of totally excited about it, that this was what climbing was all about. This was time to double down. So he climbed Mount Freya with broken ribs to the top. Coming down on the descent, he was using all his gear and cutting off pieces of slings and rope and stuff and got himself to the bottom and came out. And he still wanted to go back and climb Asgard. So this summer he went back to Mount Asgard and only to find that someone had come in in the middle of the winter and stolen his cash. And so most of the gear or a lot of the gear was gone and he was torn about what to do, whether to try to climb it with like half of what he was supposed to have. No, Jumars and stuff like that. But he decided that he would go out and come back the next year. And he told me just before he died that if he'd known he had pancreatic cancer when he was in there, he would have gone for it on on um, Asgard, and because he would have preferred to die there instead of at his home with pancreatic cancer. And I was up at his house. I was taking care of stuff, and I went up to the car and got some stuff, and I came back and I thought about it. Said. Chip, you know, there are people who I always thought were going to die in the mountains. And I named half a dozen really famous climbers that I had climbed with who had died in the mountains that I knew were going to die in the mountains. And I said, but if you had climbed Mount Asgard without your stuff, I think you would have just climbed Mount Asgard without your stuff, and it would have been quite an adventure, and you would have come back and still died here with us with your pancreatic cancer. So he didn't know he had it when he was there, and he came back out. And then um, as soon as he got back out, He was not working right then because he'd taken time off work. And he went up to the Wind Rivers and soloed a route up there and had a great adventure. And I don't know what mountain it was. One time he started to explain it to me and he started to tell me climbing stories. And then he stopped and he said, you don't actually care, do you? And I said, no, I don't really. Because it's just you went out and you climbed really hard and you had a great adventure and you came back and it was great. I don't really care about move for move what happened or anything. So when he was back this summer and by the beginning of August, he knew he had something was really wrong with him. And we were actually going to go in and climb the diamond at the end of August on a Friday. And then on Wednesday he said, um, I can't hike into the diamond. He was going to rope solo alongside Wayne Goss and I, and he came back and he he said, I can't go on Friday because my pain in my back is so strong now that I don't think I can carry the pack in to rub solo it. And then I went to his office on Friday. He was getting a scan and I went on Saturday and he wouldn't tell me. And on Saturday evening, he went into the emergency room and he was diagnosed with these with pretty severe end stage pancreatic cancer and was in and out of the hospital off and on for the next two months while he was getting worse and worse and worse.
1: Chip's philosophy seemed to be, you know, this idea of it's not the summit that matters. It's the it's the process of getting there. You know, that's sort of a very simple way of saying something that's much more profound. But my point is that so much of what he seemed to believe about climbing tends to be used in these very cliche tropes that a lot of us kind of pay homage to is we know that they're true, but we don't actually live by that principle yet he seemed to be a genuine article of or genuine testament to this philosophy and, uh, and made a career around it. Is, is that an accurate assessment? And how would you define his philosophy and, and how would you place that in the context of its genuineness and, and what it says about our sport? Well,
2: I, I think he had a genuine, a really strong and very genuine sense of the, um, it wasn't the result that counted. It was the act of doing that counted. So anytime he had a moment when he climbed really well, it didn't make a difference how hard it was or what it was, or if it was the first ascent or had been done, or if he'd done it 50 times, um, that was the point. It doesn't mean that along the way he didn't get grumpy or frustrated. Sometimes when things were going the right way, he could get pretty sort of pissed off at stuff and, um, maybe that's why he liked climbing with all these new young people because they. I think maybe they didn't call him on stuff. Like some of us who climbed with him for a long time would occasionally um, give him shit when he acted like a normal human. But um, <laughs> I don't know. He, he, it was truly important to him to be that way. And I think that's a funny thing. I was talking to Madeline Sorkin about how we all climbed better when we climbed with Chip. We all felt an obligation to live up to what we imagined was his standard. Like I climbed the scenic cruise with him in this, this year. And, um, I was seconding everything, uh, you know, with mini traction, rope sewing, second. And he was leading everything with a pack cause he was training for going to Baffin Island. And I just felt this obligation to like, um, climb really well and climb really fast. Like I was, climbing behind chips. So he was training and I just had to step up the belay and assume the rope was anchored and climb really good and get there really quickly so that he could lead the next pitch. And Madeline told me she felt the same way when she climbed with him, that he had recently led something in the black and she had followed it. And she was like, oh my God, we should put some more bolts in this. And there's like, no, it's fine. And since she had to lead her pitch and she just felt like she had to climb really well and really fast. And Something we all felt like we had to live up to his standard somehow. I'm going to jump
3: in and say that I completely can relate to the part about wanting to climb well when you were climbing with Chip. I mean, you like, as a, I was, I was pretty young when I was climbing with Chip and, and I absolutely wanted to do the right thing and to impress him. And, and that's, that's pretty cool to hear that, that that's true even recently for people who are more his peers, but um but i'm going to disagree a little bit on how his philosophy of of climbing played itself out because to to me he wasn't kind of he wasn't espousing any kind of um philosophy he did he didn't talk about the process but he was a an expert practitioner of the process he was i think he was really goal driven um, I think the product did matter to him and Jamie, you should correct me if I'm wrong here because my, my interactions with Chip, I had this intense four or five year period where we climbed, um, a few roots together and I was so, um, impacted by him. But in that time when we climbed together, he wanted the, the pitch just as much as I did. And I remember him getting upset when he fell and, and it was so cool to see somebody be so, um, human about it. Um, but where I see the spiritual side of, of his approach playing itself out is that he't li- he didn't like people talking to him while he was climbing. And it was this act of um, it was the act of being by yourself and interacting with a rock in that intellectual process and he wanted to be in that moment. And, and the social you know in rifle, there's this lexicon of what you say when somebody's on a route that did not fit with, with him as a climber. He wanted to be in the moment climbing.
2: I want to tell one other little story um, that Madeline told me. She this summer she was in the in the Black Canyon, probably in the spring, with Chip, and they were I don't know what they were doing, but he was she was leading, and he was um, climbing on a mini traction, seconding because somehow that's what we what Chip did this year. So we were he was mini tractioning up, and the rope whipped around the corner and got stuck, and um, he got out of the mini traction and repelled down about 20 or 30 feet. So he'd look around the corner and, and um, he looked around the corner and he yelled up, it's really stuck. And then he just simply cut it off <laughs> and they had, uh, you know, 30 meters of rope left and they just climbed out with their 30 meter rope. But what Madeline said that I thought was interesting is there was no discussion or quandary or what should I do? This is like a four minute thing. It's like, the rope ran around the corner. The rope is stuck. I'm cutting it off. It's gone. We're climbing out. And that was just the way Chip was. Just he made decisions and act, acted upon them very quickly. Wait, wait, wait,
0: wait. Don't, don't cut that.
2: Oh. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, this will be enough rope. We'll be fine. Right.
0: <laughs> Talking a little bit more about some other aspects of his life. I keep seeing people talking about him as a healer. I know that he was one of the foremost practitioners of Chinese medicine, at least in this part of the of the United States. Can you talk a little bit about the that part of his life and whether that you know was was wound up in his climbing or were there kind of two separate people there?
2: They were actually very separate for him. I had had some weird disease i'd gotten in vietnam that i would get really sick and be in bed and um, western medicine never ever figured out what it was but for many many years i would go to chip and he would feel my pulses and check me out in this chinese medicine way and then put needles in me and give me horrible herbs and he basically could fix me and nobody else ever could and um, so i was both the patient of his and he had many, many patients. There were a lot of people that really saw him as the reason they could function in the world physically because he healed an awful lot of people. And he also was working on a way of integrating uh, Western medicine with Chinese medicine. And he was working with a group of people in Europe and that he was an internationally known, significant Chinese medicine person. In the two months when he was home, when he was dying, um, People came from Europe that were uh, Chinese medicine people to try to finish some work they've been doing, do a, doing a, some books. And they also came just to see him. And um, at some point I was there and there was this Zen guy who showed up from Japan. And so he had three separate pieces, well, four separate pieces. One was Monica. And he and Monica were very, very close. And that was always super important to him. And then sort of tied in with that were always these cute little border collies. But in his other life, um, there was climbing, which was kept fairly separate from his Zen practice, which he did very seriously. He spent a lot of time sitting. He spent days at a time at, at retreats. And then separate from that, then again, was his Chinese medicine practice, which was he literally taught all over the world. And um, he would get a teaching gig in uh, Spain and then he'd go and he'd teach for three or four days and then he'd go to Mallorca and rope solo or he'd hire a guide at some place and so he literally climbed all over the world as sort of an adjunct to be teaching all over the world as well.
0: You know we're we're talking about uh, Chip Chase as this inspiration and I kind of wanted to talk to you both because of a little bit of my kind of confusion about what that means to me i never knew chip once this happened he was brought back into my mind in a heavy way i i started to think about just that thing of like well what did he do and how many roots have i climbed of his and how is it that this person was in fact inspiring me because i realized that i hadn't climbed very many of his roots and in fact you know, looking on the Internet, I didn't know much about him. I, I knew his name from a few different places. And yet, for some reason, I just always felt like he represented something in climbing that that I should aspire to, even if I wasn't exactly sure what it is. If you if you get my meaning, like a little bit of a mystery. So if, if you're thinking about Chip Chase as an inspiration to someone like me or a younger climber, and I know that there were a lot of younger climbers that that climbed with Chip. And we've been hearing from him in some of the media since, since he passed. Thinking about your own experiences with Chip, what should we take away as this inspiration if we wanted to actually be a little bit more concrete about how Chip should inspire a younger climber or a younger generation?
3: Well, I would say that, that um, he was so passionate about climbing. I mean, he had an incredible work ethic about it. And when you pair that with how long he climbed and how um, ambitious his goals were and then how, how personal it was and how he didn't need to tell anybody what he was doing. And then for me, there's a third element of, of just the the fact that he reached out to me as a young climber and what I learned from somebody in, in that role that was really, really powerful for me personally. And I wonder how many other people are out there who were influenced by him in this way. But I, I remember things like, i was a, i was a young climber climbing with a lot of the other young climbers and in, in the desert a lot and he called me to do this route um in indian creek and we met and he drove eight hours from boulder to do to be there and then i i got basically a clinic on how how to do indian creek correctly i remember he we got out of the car and he um sat on the tailgate and started to tape his hands. And I was like, what What are you doing? You do that at the cliff. And he had glue and he had this incredibly meticulous way that he taped his hands. And I was like, oh my God, what's this guy doing? And I, and I watched him tape his hands and it took half an hour and I did exactly what he did. And then later, once we were on the diamond and and um, he he went up to this one trickle of water and he started drinking from it. And he explained that, after over years and years, this is the where he could get a drink and 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 not get Giardia, and so I was learning from this like sage of the mountains, and and it, it, he just he was so Im- he made such a huge impression on me. So when you when you factor the, the young climbers that he influenced, and then that that sort of um, ethic of not needing to tell anybody about what he was doing, but just this insatiable thirst for climbing. That where he needed all these young partners, it just it just left a really really deep impression, and I, I I just I adored him, I totally loved him, yeah.
2: He would make so much fun of me taping. He would be, look at me and shake his head like, "What are you doing?" Because I never knew how to do anything right, and um. He, <laughs> it's, there's almost no climb that I ever asked him about that he hadn't climbed. Like I, the other day, I, I was talking to him the other day, just before he died. Anyway, he said, what did you climb on? I said, oh, we were on vasodilator, this 13A in Boulder Canyon. And he said, oh, yeah, I onsighted that. That was a good day. And and he said something about, "Oh, I one thing I'd love to do before I die is to go back and climb El Cap one more time. And I didn't ask him how many times I climbed he climbed El Cap or what he climbed. But my guess is probably pretty a lot. Um, in the same way, he climbed the diamond more than 50 times. And it, there was almost never a route that I asked him about that he hadn't done it. Like he climbed everything, everywhere. Everything in the Black Canyon, everything in the Wind Rivers, everything in Zion, everything in Yosemite, everything around here. He was It was remarkable how it's like if you go climbing four days a week consistently, for 40 years, that was Chip.
0: Thanks to you both for coming on. I know that you lost a really, really good friend, and it can be hard to talk about that. Uh, but as, as much as there is, you know, little information about this this man, and maybe maybe he just would find this also too much, but um, but he's gone, and I'm glad you came on and, and, and told us about Chip Chase. He was a great mentor and uh, he will be missed
2: he was a really good friend of mine and i loved him and always wanted to try to live up to his standards and i never ever climbed as good as him but um i do miss him a lot
0: If you have a comment, topic suggestion, or just a good bit of climbing trivia, join us at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash runoutpodcast, or drop us a line at our webpage, runoutpodcast.com.